salutations. It's been a while, but I'm back. It's Lester K here, y'all, and it's another edition of the Black History Fascist Show podcast. Glad to be with you today, tonight, this evening, this morning, wherever wherever the, the podcast hits you, whatever the time zone you're in. Thank you for letting us back into your headphones, your earphones. Wanted to circle up with the audience again. It's been a little while. We've had an election. Still having an election. Hard to say. But wanted to do a special episode tonight, a shorter episode. Not really focused on black history so much as the black present. As one of the, it is said, 20% of black men who voted for Donald Trump for president rather than Joe Biden, I wanted to take to the airwaves this evening. I'm taping this on Tuesday night, November the 10th. And I wanted to come and talk to you about why I didn't vote for Joe Biden. Maybe I'll do a different show on why I did vote for Donald Trump, but I'm going to tell you why I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I'm not going to pretend to speak for the other 20% of black men who did vote for Donald Trump. They can speak for themselves, and I'm not even sure that that 20% number is correct. Who can believe any kind of polling, especially exit polling? It might have been 40%. It might have been 10%. might have been 5 But right now, we're stuck with this number of 20%, and we're stuck. um, Well, I'm not stuck. You might be stuck. But we're in this time now where it's open season. Everybody can declare themselves openly for their disgust for black men and um, all of their crimes, real or imagined, their treachery, and how they did Joe wrong, and by extension, how they did black women wrong. And extending from that how they did all women and boys and girls around the globe wrong because they voted the wrong way. They voted for Donald Trump. So I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm explaining to you my antipathy for Joe Biden. Um, He's not quite president-elect yet. That has not happened. I know the media has already anointed him, but he's not there yet. The states have not certified him as the president-elect. There seems to be some chicanery afoot. How much did it make a difference? I don't know at this moment. None of us know. So I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch. And while I'm waiting, you know, I've been reading and I've been uh, looking at the tweets from various official Negro spokesmen in America. And uh, they're very disappointed with me. So I have a microphone, I have a laptop, I have the ability to upload my words onto the internet still, so I'm going to do that. So we'll take a short time to do that, and then I'm going to just make a a flat-out plug for the essay that I have published on to Kindle first in a series of essays um, about black identity and the problems facing black America right now, and what 
possibly uh, could be a, a solution, a solution or some solutions for uh, some of the things facing black America. But first, let's talk about Joe Biden. Let's talk about why I didn't vote for him. And I'm going to give you three reasons. One, number one, it starts for me with the Clarence Thomas hearings. And I'm going to tell you a little secret about your host, Lester. I'm related to one of the key players in the entire Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill fiasco. Ambush, let's say. I'm related to this person by blood. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You have a pretty good chance of guessing. <laughs> so, I didn't know who Clarence Thomas was. but uh, And I didn't know who Anita Hill was. But... Um, I had suspicions about Miss Hill, and I'll say it this way. I, I went to my grandmother's house to ask her some questions, and uh, my grandmother was not political, not in any way that I remember. And to my surprise, she had the hearings on. So I started asking her questions about this person, and my grandmother was watching the the uh, the hearings and we spent a long time watching them and you know they scanned the room let's say they scanned the the room where the hearings were taking place and my grandmother I recognized some people in the room <laughs> and based on their presence there my grandmother made a pronouncement I'll never forget she looked she looked she named the people in the room and then she said she's lying <laughs> They put her up to this. They're getting some money. And so it was case closed for, for, for my grandmother. Um, for me, watching Joe Biden's performance in that, how condescending he was. Uh, he was oleaginous. He was just oily, greasy salesman. And he wasn't fooling anyone. The way he spoke to Judge Thomas he was speaking to a child. It wasn't something serious that this black man was up here pretending he was going to be on the Supreme Court. And Joe was just going to be so solicitous and phony in being solicitous. And he was just going to explain to Clarence Thomas how the law worked. Even though Joe graduated near the bottom of his law class. And Clarence Thomas has revealed himself to be one of the more brilliant justices of the last 50, 100 years. So anyway, I watched Joe Biden during that clown show. I watched how he treated Clarence Thomas, not as an equal, but as someone to explain things to. He was schooling Clarence Thomas all the way through the trial and the hearing. And then to read David Brock's book, later about called the real Anita Hill and then you real and then you read about how Biden just sandbagged Clarence Thomas. Oh judge, we're not gonna allow this. Judge, we're gonna do this. Judge, we're gonna take care of you here. Judge, we're gonna protect you here. But at the same time he's working behind the scenes to completely ambush this man on national television and let him be smeared as some sort of freak sexual harasser. 
as somebody who would leave a pubic hair on a can of soda, as somebody who would hit on peanut head Anita Hill for years and years, even when she left his employee. Give me a break. And all this time, they knew there was big holes in her story. They knew that the person she was describing, if there was a real person, was someone she had worked with before she ever worked for Clarence Thomas or after. The timelines didn't fit, and they knew this when they were taking her testimony. But Joe Biden put her in front of America because to Joe Biden, smearing a black man is a sexual predator. That's one of the perks of the job, baby. So that was obvious about Joe Biden then. I knew from then that the dude was trouble. He shouldn't be trusted with power. And he was somebody, if he had his way, God knows what would happen to people like me. So that's Joe Biden. So when he makes this comment all these years later, they're going to put y'all back in chains. Well, that was a little bit of projection from Joe, I think. I think he had some chains he wanted to fit fit us in. Number two, people talk about the crime bill. And they talk about the mass incarceration caused by the crime bill, which I think is a, a bit of uh, a bit off. I think I think that's a miss. Uh, the Violent Crime and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, what we call the crime bill. What that was about was about the re-election of President Bill Clinton. The law was signed in September of 1994. Some of y'all don't remember what was going on in 1994, so I'll tell you. 1994, there was big momentum. There had been a lot of corruption discovered in the House of Representatives. Shocking, I know. And the House of Representatives have been dominated by Democrats for 50 years. Newt Gingrich had come out with this thing called the Contract with America. It's very popular. Republicans were gaining momentum. They were rooting out and exposing all of the corruption in the House of Representatives. Go and look up the House Post Office. Some of you youngins out there, the House Post Office. Go and look up what was going on there. So this is all coming out. Clinton wins in 92 you know, he's still seen as by many as some sort of maybe possibly reformed hippie. Democrats in general were seen as soft on crime. Richard Nixon had made crime a, a big part of his election victories, and Republicans kind of carried that mantle of being tough on crime, and Democrats were soft on crime. So Bill Clinton going to lose the House, going to lose his electoral uh, mandate, his momentum. And maybe even sets him up to lose in 96. So he's got to look tough. He had really made strides when he was running for president. When he had his sister soldier moment. Something else for you youngins to look up. Because I'm not going to do it for you tonight. And I'm certainly not going to do a Black History Fashion Show episode on sister soldier. Please. So anyway, he has his sister soldier moment where he stands up to her. This black militant and. You know, sounds like a responsible, middle-class, uh, white Republican. And people said, well, maybe this guy's a different kind of Democrat, right? So, and at the time, you had the Democrat Leadership Committee or Council, the DLC, which was trying to get Democrats not to go too far crazy left, kind of steer towards the middle and pick off the suburban vote. So, Bill Clinton had to look rough, tough on crime, baby. 
Now, the people in the suburbs uh, weren't suffering from crime. <laughs> uh, so, you know, 30, 40 years, 100 years, 140 years. Look, let's be honest. When American politicians are talking about crime, uh, they're not talking about Becky in the suburbs. Let's put it that way. We all know who they're talking about. So, crime bill. But even the title is a giveaway for what was really going on. The Violent Crime and Law Enforcement Act. With this bill, Clinton gained the endorsement of a huge police union. Uh, the crime bill was actually a full employment act for police officers around the country. It poured federal money into community policing. Uh, um, police employment went up, right? The police unions benefited. So that's a nice little endorsement to have in your back pocket. I'm not soft on crime. All the police are endorsing me. What are you talking about? Joe Biden's part in this, that the, the part of it that, that is disgusting and bothers black men particularly, but black people in general, is Joe Biden, man. Hey, we all know what the scam is. Black people are complaining. There's crime in their neighborhoods. They want something done. And so black politicians like Kwesi and Fumeng, who was popular at the time, who was the leader of the Congressional Black Congress, this dude is all about Democrats winning and retaining power. He's all about riding Bill Clinton's coattails. So black people, the black masses in the cities, especially who are suffering under crime, hey, we're going to do a crime bill for y'all. Really what we're going to do is we're going to do a, a favor for our union cronies who donate to us, but we'll call it a crime bill, and then we'll get to be able to say we're tough on crime. Well, so Biden is so stupid. He didn't even get the cue. All he had to do was stand up and talk about, hey, we love our, we love the police. We love our law enforcement officers. We got to give them more tools to, you know, combat crime. That's all he had to say. This man got up here and talked about super predators who couldn't be reformed, who couldn't be redeemed. Got to get them off the street. So you watch his speech. And I'm watching Joe Biden up here, and I'm thinking about all the lynchings. I'm thinking about how Democrats in the South used to show they were tough on crime. They showed they were tough on crime by getting some rope, <laughs> finding the nearest handy black man, and stringing him up, and then setting him on fire. I did a whole. I didn't do an entire episode, but one of one of the. Uh, podcast ep episodes we did I talked about a riot down in Savannah Georgia they made a picnic out of it man they made a carnival out of burning these two black men so when you watch that speech from Joe Biden there is a collective memory of black America is watching this guy talking about super predators and how we got to protect people from these people who can't be redeemed and we all know who he's talking about this is what sticks in the craw of black men Here's another Democrat flexing his muscles at the expense of black people. And really, who pushed the ball along and gave him permission to do that were, were the black elected officials. From Maxine Waters to Carol Mosley Braun to Kwesi and Fume. They don't think anything about selling out lower class black men so they can stay in power. This is why when people flooded across the border from Mexico, from Central America, to come here and take construction jobs, to take cleaning jobs, to take 
menial jobs that blacks with high school diplomas would normally work and lost those jobs. That's why they didn't say anything. Because the Chamber of Commerce types, because the party, because this is what people wanted. And so they went along with the party line and sold out black America for jobs. Who cares if the families were were destroyed by lack of employment? Who cares that you couldn't compete and, and, and get a job unless you spoke Spanish? They weren't going to speak up for you. So that's the base of people that Joe Biden stood on top of to give a speech to tell us that we were super predators. It's one thing for some guys sitting around a beer hall and Georgia or somewhere talking about black men are super predators and you gotta watch out for them. That's one thing. But a sitting senator giving a speech in the United States Senate saying that about us, that's a whole nother ball game. So that's Joe Biden. That's strike two. Strike three for, for Joe. And really, I didn't need more than one strike, but his whole comment this spring really really summarized Joe Biden. You know, if you if you can't figure out whether to vote for him or Trump, you ain't really black. You ain't black. Joe has a thing for telling black people what, what they what they are, what they know, right? And then he talked about further, you know, in the summer he talked about, well, Latinos, they have diversity of thought. Blacks don't have diversity of thought. Oh, okay. <laughs> You sure it was just 20% of black men that didn't vote for him? You sure it was just 20? So how does Joe mean the you ain't black statement? Well, he means it ideologically, of course. And ideological fealty in the black community is actually a class marker. And I mean it in a few different ways. And I'll try to illustrate it simply for you. So I'm not on here for the next one hour. But... You ain't black means you're not really with us. You're not our type of black. You're not the black person who will put ideology, left-wing ideology, in front of whatever the needs are of lower-class blacks. If you can't figure out that you should vote for me and support whatever it is I'm pushing, Planned Parenthood, who kills more black babies than the Klan could ever dream of. Uh, what is this thing that he talked about? Uh, the uh, um, transsexual rights and, yeah, eight-year-olds that have the ability to have themselves, their sexual organs mutilated. Black people are not down with this. But the ideological blacks, the black elite, the black elected class, oh, they're down with it, baby. Believe because it gives them access to power. So, and again, I don't want to go on and on about this because I actually am writing about it and more about that later, but if you really want to get into some of this stuff, get on Twitter and follow a guy named Curtis Schoon, S-C-O-O-N. Read some stuff that Jason Whitlock has been writing. He was on Fox and now he's at outkick.com. Um, I found a good article by a guy named Terrain Walker, who I'd never heard of. And he'll give you an explanation of the people that Joe Biden, or a description of the people that Joe Biden considers black. And I'll read a little bit here 
um, there's a psych there there's a psychological hierarchy among black people. Those of us who went to the right schools, join the right fraternity or sorority, and have the right connections see themselves as the only people fit to articulate the concerns of black people to America's white power structure. If you're not part of that group, you are not qualified to speak. It's a holdover from the idea of the talented 10th popularized by W.E.B. Du Bois that only the, quote, best, close quote, black people should represent us. The problem is, all too often, people who claim to be representing us are really representing themselves. For this group, which now includes the professional social media protester, being seen as the HNIC, go look that one up, who explains black struggle to white liberals is the goal. If authentic black concerns have to be suppressed to achieve that goal, so be it. And some of the discussion about black male voters from the members or applicants to this group sound like they come from the scientific racist Du Bois spent so much of his life combating. He goes on. The thing is, many of the black strivers advising them, liberal whites, have only a surface understanding of black culture at best and no connection whatsoever to the black masses. They have no interest in learning more as that would jeopardize their proximity to whiteness and power. This is how black voters get twerking and surface level representation, he has that in quotes, instead of policy while every other voting block gets solid policy discussions. There is no black solidarity. There is no monolithic black thought. There is a monolithic black political class that um, spans sports, movies, you know, the media, right, popular entertainment, the arts, politics, and the universities. It's a thin class. And they're very useful to the white left because they can point to them and say, well, they're speaking for black people. No, they are not. One of my favorite examples of this is, and I'll always go back to it, is what happened to Kelly Williams Bolar in Ohio, the woman who was thrown in jail for moving her children to using her dad's address so her kids could go to a better public school. She was thrown in jail for this. And the reason the law existed is to protect the teachers' unions, is to protect public schools, is to protect a big voting block for Democrats, for the left, the people who fund their campaigns. They don't care about black kids in these bad schools. They care about the teachers' unions. So here's a black woman thrown in jail behind this mess. Where were the black leaders standing up for her? Well, Jesse Jackson showed up and Al Sharpton showed up. And then they said it was a race issue why she was in jail. No, it's a public school issue. No, it was a teacher's union issue. And they turned it around. There is no true black solidarity. There is no black monolith. Black solidarity now equals political and ideological conformity. Black nationalism has been replaced by political solidarity.
So you look at the, Jamel Hill actually made this argument, which was shocking, but she made it the wrong way. You look at the institutions that black people created, all the schools that Booker T started, all the HBCUs across the South. Of course, black people should be able to go to University of Arkansas or Mississippi or Georgia. They're taxpayers. Absolutely. But does that mean you walk away from the institutions that were created and that served black people? I mean, look at Texas Southern. Texas Southern is a fine school. Many prominent graduates from Texas Southern. That's a historically black college. Why would you prop up Rice, which is the only elite school in Houston, maybe even in Texas, over Texas Southern? Why would you prop up Houston Baptist or the University of Houston? Why would you prop up any of these institutions over the institutions that have historically served black people? Just because you integrated into white society and you've been accepted and you've been and you have conformed ideologically to the left or to the right. That's another story. I'll get to them down the road. Why do you throw away these other institutions? Why do you have to do that? Why are we less than now that you get to run with your cool white friends? So there is no black solidarity. There is no monolith of black thought. That is a myth. And Joe Biden, this great healer, this great racial healer, this, this man who, who, who can speak to black America and heal them after this racist Trump was in office, he doesn't know anything about what black Americans think. This dude probably thinks that Kamala Harris is a black American. Kamala Harris is an American, and she's got some pigment in her skin, but she ain't one of us. She's not. I hate to say it that way. But if we're really going to talk about who's the blame and black men are the blame and who's speaking for black people, well, it ain't Kamala Harris. She took delight in throwing black men in jail. She has an Indian mother. She has a Jamaican father. A Jamaican father who somehow is also related to slaveholders. She's raised in Montreal, Canada <laughs> by, a, by an Indian woman. And somehow all you can do is look at her color and she's a black American? No. Is that all that... Joe Biden knows about us? Is that all the white left knows about us? Oh, here they are. They're kind of brown. That's an African-American. Really? I remember back, what was it, the 96 Olympics, 92 Olympics, one of those Olympics, where there was a French woman. She was a sprinter. She won, you know, I want to say she won gold or silver in the 200 meters. And the announcer on television says she becomes the first French African-American woman to win a medal. Oh, my gosh. It's the left that denies us our, our nationality as Americans. The left does that. And in return for being recognized by those people, you have a thin group of black Americans who stand up and tell the rest of us to shut up, where to vote, where to stand, how to live. And then they get nice little pats on the head from their cool, white, powerful friends. Well, Joe Biden is part of that crowd. I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to vote for somebody from that crowd. It won't happen. So, yeah, I'm proud to be part of the 20%. Proud to be part of the 20%. Does that make me one-fifth of a person? Oh, just kidding. So, I outlined it for you. 
You don't have to agree with it. I try not to get too political on these podcast episodes for the Black History Fashion Show. But since black people have been, you know, kind of the subject du jour, of, uh, you know, or at least for the summer, right? I'm going to tell you the truth about us. And I'm going to tell you the truth that we are not represented on your television screens. We're not represented by Kamala Harris. We're not represented by Van Jones. We're certainly not represented by Candace Owens. We're not represented by Thomas Sowell or Larry Elder. We're not. Those people are ideological. They're engaged in an ideological fight for, for you know, I'm not going to disparage their reasons. They may be, some of them I'm sure are, are sincere in, in what they're thinking and what they're trying to accomplish. But they lost sight of the rest of black America. It's been the summer to talk about what to do about black folks again, another one of those summers. So I thought I'd tell you the truth about, you know, what we're thinking a little bit. At least I'd tell you the truth about who we're not. And if that marks me out, and a minority inside of a minority, oh, you know I'm fine with that. Okay, so after this break, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back, we'll wrap up the show, and we'll get out of here. Okay, we'll wrap it up. I want to put in a plug. Continue to listen to this podcast. I appreciate all of you. I'm here on Spotify, on, on Apple Podcasts. We're all over the place. Pretty much wherever you can get a podcast, you can get the Black History Fashion Show. Tell your friends. Give us a listen. Listen to some prior episodes and get caught up. And also, I want to put in a plug uh, for my website, LesterCahill.com. Still trying to get that thing wrangled and in the right direction, but that's where you'll find uh, my blogs, uh, my blogs, my blog, and uh, you know I post on there irregularly, but I post when I can. You know when I have some quick thoughts to shoot off, I put it there, and I I want to really use that site as somewhere that hosts not hosts but houses. I would say the episodes for this podcast, and then has the blog, and then uh, where you can just kind of keep up with me and. Uh, the essay series that I'm putting together. And so uh, the essay that is on Kindle is called House of Bondage, The Creation and Nullification of Black Identity. It's the first in a series. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from it. It's a short. These are essays. It's not a series of books. It's not. I'm not J.K. Rowling. I'm not going to write seven books, nine, 900 pages each. It's not going to do that. You can read this thing 30 minutes. You know, if you went to public school, it might take you 45 minutes. Just kidding. Um, it's $2.99. $2.99 on Kindle. Go ahead and pick the thing up. You know I'm not trying to get rich on the $2.99 essay. And y'all do things that are not good for your bodies with that $2.99. You don't need those two extra donuts do you really need that coffee with all that extra sugar in there? Go ahead and skip it one day and just go ahead and get on Kindle. Look for Lester Cahill, House of Bondage, The Creation and Nullification of Black Identity 
let's get started there. You enjoy the podcast. You enjoy uh, uh, my blog. You'll like the essay. So here's a part of the essay that I wrote that, that kind of touches on what we were talking about uh, tonight. And this is what I wrote. I, I wrote, how did we get a black nobility divided by ideology but united in that it holds some of the same repugnant views of black people as any run-of-the-mill 1920s Klansmen. We got it as a byproduct of the most successful political movement ever run by black Americans, the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. The black civil rights regime has produced the wealthiest and most credentialed generation of blacks the world has ever seen. It has also overseen the rise of a black underclass that lives in generational poverty. The biggest income gap in America over the last 40 years has not been between whites and blacks. From 1970 through 2018, blacks in the 90th percentile earned only 10, I mean, earned nearly 10 times what blacks in the 10th percentile earned. So the wealth, this is an aside, the wealth concentration is in the top 10% of blacks in America. So I'll continue and finish here. Codified or codified rate white racism is not the problem in black America, nor is so-called white supremacy. Number one on the list of modern black problems is the unspoken resentment and class divide between blacks who were integrated into mainstream white society and those who were not. This bifurcation in the black community is the sensitive fault line which produces many of the social tremors and earthquakes that are blamed on racism. Black people love Exodus and Moses analogies. Think of the problem along those lines. Imagine if after the Israelites got to the promised land, Joshua realized 30% of the people never made it past the Red Sea. Instead of organizing a rescue party, Joshua and the tribal leaders broadcast the good life of milk and honey on their Instagram feeds, and they make music videos about how hard it is to live in Egypt. That is the black issue. So I'll leave you with that, and we'll come back again next time on the Black History Fashion Show. Uh, we'll pick up some of the characters and events that make up black history. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you uh, for giving me space to make this <laughs> apology or apologia for, uh, for black men who voted for Trump. So, until next time, later, homies. <laughs>